Uh, my name's Austin, and I'm on staff here at Mercy House. I came to UMass as an undergrad. Uh, I've been here ever since, eight, eight years ago or so now. So it's been a, been a little while. And uh, yeah, my wife and I live and work here in Amherst. And I am also at seminary out at Gordon-Conwell on the North Shore of Boston uh, doing all of those things. So glad to come up and, and please come up and introduce yourself after the service if I have not met you. Uh, we are a little bit shorter on our staff this week uh, because we have the crosswalk camp. So uh, Robert uh, and his wife Melanie, uh, Megan, Tommy, and V, who is still here but we're heading out tomorrow, are going to be uh, at a uh, kids, uh, teen camp all week in Rhode Island. And it's going to be teens from all over the New England area, and they're going to be coming, and Robert's going to be preaching uh, all week. So it's going to be a lot. It's going to be awesome. If you've ever been to camp, you know what that's like. It's crazy <laughs> all day. Um, so if you would be praying for them, praying that God would sustain them, and praying uh, for all the teens who are going to be there, they would hear the gospel and respond in faith. So let's, let's do that right now and uh, pray for them, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you that you are over all things and in control of all things, and that through your Son we are reconciled to you, and that through your Spirit we are indwelt by you, who empowers us. And we ask uh, this morning uh, for you to be sustaining uh, these leaders all week as they're serving these, uh, these teens, Lord, that you would be uh, just empowering them, encouraging them by your Spirit, giving them the energy they need, giving them uh, opportunities to have conversation with these kids, to pour into them, to love them, to speak truth into their lives. We ask uh, you would speak through Robert uh, as he preaches your word all week, and we ask for those who are coming who have never uh, encountered you before, Lord, that they would um, surrender their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and be transformed, Lord, to know uh, their Creator and their God. So, Lord, we, we lift these up to you and pray that it would be for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this week we are coming up to our last letter of our brief sermon series, and this is the letter of Philemon. Uh, so we'll have three, three sermons on the, the letter uh, to Philemon. So I'm going to give a little background, talk about how we should study a letter like this, look at some of Paul's rhetorical devices, and look at some of the, the themes that we can take away uh, for today. So because it's a letter, it's, it's written from one party to another, right? Somebody's writing a letter from someone to someone else, they're writing it in, about something in particular, and they're writing it in response to something in particular. So as we read it, uh, we got to think about the fact that this was not necessarily written to us, but it was preserved for us. And so because the Holy Spirit is, is uh, inspiring this word and is continuing to teach us through it today. So a little bit of background here. Paul is writing this as a personal letter to his friend Philemon. So the letters we've looked at this, this summer, this is the only one from Paul. Paul just happens to be generally more long-winded. <laughs> this is one of his, his shortest letters, uh, so it made, it, it made the cut. Uh, he's writing this to his personal friend Philemon, and he introduces himself as a prisoner. And so we, we're guessing that this is when Paul was under house arrest in Rome. So this would have been between 60 and 62 AD. Near the end of his ministry, Paul ends up in Rome. He's under house arrest. And he's writing this letter to this guy Philemon. Well, we know because of some other things mentioned in the letter. So Archippus, who's mentioned at the beginning, if you're, if you're following along there in the intro. Um, and then also Onesimus, who you heard is, 
uh, one of the, the main subject of this letter, are both mentioned in the letter to the Colossians. And so we, were, we know that this letter was actually sent with Onesimus and this guy uh, Tychicus to Coloss Colossae uh, with the letter to the Colossians. Okay, so both these letters were sent together, which means Philemon would have actually heard both, both letters. Um, now, even though it's a personal letter to Philemon, uh, the, there are several other things mentioned in this. Um, that there's, there's a house church in Philemon's house, and so we don't know if that's who the letter to the Colossians is also written to, or if that's written to a different house church in Colossae, but presumably these letters would have circulated to everyone. Now, we don't know all the details about the context, um, so we're kind of inferring our best about what's going on here, but we do have a couple of things that we can guess. The fact that we still have this letter today suggests that Philemon responded favorably to Paul's request, right? If he was like, forget you, Paul, I'm not doing that, he probably wouldn't have kept this letter, <laughs> right? So we're guessing that he probably did what Paul's asking him to do. So sorry for the spoiler on that. And then even though this is a very specific context that the letter's dealing with, the fact that Philemon kept it and that the other churches would have read it suggests that they, they thought this was important for everyone. Right? This wasn't just for Philemon or just for Onesimus or even just for that house church. This is for the whole church at large. So, like I said, when we pay it need, look at this, we need to pay particular attention to the context, but we also need to ask, how is this relating to us today? Are there either general principles or are there parallel situations that we can look at today? And I think those are questions that will sort of frame as we move into the next couple of weeks as well. So, jumping into verse 1, we have Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, Appia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you, peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So unlike the age of text message today, right, where you just send somebody, you know, a couple of little blurbs or something, in the ancient world, and still to an extent today, there was a very formal letter-writing system. Right, you gave an introduction, you had some greeting, you had a body, you had a conclusion, right? It was like writing a, a paper or something. And we do this today, right? especially when we write emails, some of us, you know, dear, dear so-and-so, hope you're doing well, you know, there's, there's your greeting, then you tell them why you're writing, and then, you know, much love or sincerely so-and-so. Right? So we have a sense of there's, there's a sort of formula you follow, and then what you do with that affects and shows things about who you're writing to, right? So if it's my grandmother, I'm just, oh, you know, much love, miss you, can't wait to see you. If it's one of my professors, I'm probably not going to say that. It'd be a little weird. Right, so I'm going to mix up some of those elements, but the, the, the core structure is the same. And I think that uh, this, we see that when you look at across Paul's letters, this is really kind of just a fun thing to do, but like go look at the beginning of each of Paul's letters, and he uses basically the same exact formula in every one of them. But he uses, he interchanges little things, right? So in the letter to the Colossians, he talks about being a slave to Christ. But in this one, he talks about being a prisoner to Christ, and I think we'll find out why that it matters next week. But little things like that that Paul switches up of who the letters, who he's including and who it's from, who it's written to, all of those kind of things. And I think this is related to how the, the, it's like an inverse relationship between how frequent we can communicate and how like formal we communicate, right? So when you send a text message, you're not going to, I mean, sometimes maybe you have grandparents or people who do this still who are like, this is dear so-and-so, this is, you're like, it's a text message. Just say like, hey, what are you doing? Uh, but it feels awkward, right, when you do that in a text message. But when you write a letter to somebody, you're not just going to start out with, like, what's up, right? You're, 
hey, dear, you know, so-and-so, and you, and you use the formal letter writing frequency. And in Paul's time, this letter would have been sent by hand, right, carried from Rome all the way into the Middle East. I mean, that would have taken a long time, right? He's not expecting a response three hours from now when you check your email again, right? <laughs> he, he's knowing that this email's gonna be heard, this letter's gonna be read in a long time from now, and then if he gets a response, it's also gonna be an even longer time from now. And so that affects the, the structure you see in, in the letter and what Paul's using. Um, okay, so even though this is sort of a formulaic, there's still this intention, intentionality to it. So he talks about grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's just a common greeting that Paul uses all the time, right? It's literally his version of like, hope you're doing well. But there's so much tied into that of what he's talking about that it would be peace from God and in Jesus Christ, right? That these shape uh, the whole gospel message which is at the core of who Paul is. And so the fact that this is his common greeting shows that this is what he cared most about, right? For him, this is like the, the central thing that Jesus, the Lord, that we have God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have this intimate relationship under the Lordship of Christ. This is like how he starts his conversations, right? So it kind of gives you a sense of where Paul's at in this relationship. We also have, what's really interesting in this letter is we have a lot of switching back between singular and plural pronouns. So in Paul's letter to the Colossians, it's pretty much all plural stuff. It's like, you do this, you that, you that, you that, because he's writing to a bunch of people. But this one, he's writing to a particular person. He's writing to Philemon. So it's mostly you, singular, um, which of course doesn't come out in English, but is there in, in the Greek. But yet, in both the intro and the conclusion, he does use plural language. He does include the broader church. And he's including this larger community of faith of which Philemon is an integral part, and he's reminding Philemon of the intimate relationship that he's sharing with these other believers. So it suggests that along with the letter of Colossians, this letter would have also been read aloud to the whole church. So if you look at the first couple, uh, verse 2, when he's including uh, Archippus and Aphia, uh, these are both probably leaders in the church, at this house church, in some capacity. There's suggestions about, you know, Aphia maybe being Philemon's wife or something like that. We're not sure. Um, but it's like CCing someone on email, right? So if you want to make a request to somebody and you want to make sure they actually respond to it, you like CC their boss or something, right? I don't know if you've ever done something like this, but you, you, if you want to make sure something gets done, right? You, you know if I add so-and-so to this letter and, or this email, it's going to happen because now there's accountability. And that's what we're seeing Paul do here. He's like, yeah, Philemon, I have like, something with you we need to work out. But hey, everybody else, Philemon and I have something to work out. <laughs> I want, you, I want you to pay attention to this. So, although Paul's taking this time to write this personal letter, this mail is open to everyone. Philemon's business is the whole church's business, which, I don't know, makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> but what we see here, and this is sort of the first theme or, or first truth for us today, is that faith is personal, right? It's not just this generic letter to the church he's writing to Philemon, but it's not private, right? Everyone knows what's happening in Philemon's life. And so we see, uh, we see this when we continue on in verse 4. So I thank my God always, and I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith you have towards the Lord Jesus for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. That last sentence is like one of Paul's classic, uh, there's so many things going on, sentences. 
but I'll get to that in a moment. But Paul here gives thanks because of Philemon's faith in Christ and his love for the saints, which is God's people, the church, and that this is something that Paul has heard about from others, meaning that Philemon's faith isn't this like private saying, oh, he believes in Jesus over here in his closet when he prays. No, Philemon's living in such a way that it's obvious that he has faith in Christ, and it's obvious that he loves these people. And we can guess this also, that one of the ways he's doing this is actually the fact that he's hosting the church in his house, right? Which means he's using his hospitality and his resources to, to fund and sustain this, this local church, right? He's supporting these people. He's providing, probably providing some food for them. Uh, and so we see Philemon's faith in action in this way. Also, the fact that Paul gives us this, he's talking about his love here. We see that Paul was not necessarily a lone figure. We often think about Paul and think Paul's like this hot shot over off by himself, right? He's just planting churches and doing his ministry thing, and he's a superstar. But actually, Paul has this real sense of, of desperately needing other people to support him, right? This letter is from, Tim, from Paul and our brother Timothy. And we'll find out in a little bit about how Onesimus is serving Paul and making it, sustaining him as he's under this house arrest in Rome. So Paul's recognizing this deep dependence that Paul has to do his ministry based on the faithfulness and love of these other believers. So even Paul is very much needing these other believers to sustain what he is doing in his ministry. In verse 6, he talks about the sharing of your faith that may become effective. This word for sharing, uh, we hear sharing of your faith and kind of first thing that pops in your head is like, oh, evangelism. I don't know, that's what I thought when I first read it. Um, but actually this word here is koinonia, sharing as in, as in uh, fellowship. Right? This is the fellowship of faith. So this is not going out and, and preaching the gospel to non-believers. This is the living out of faith amongst the people of God. And so this fellowship of faith is uh, becoming effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that's in us for the sake of Christ. And Paul expresses this very similar idea in Colossians. Like I said, Philemon's hearing both of these letters. Okay? So if we look at Colossians 1, Verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as we learned it, as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So all of those times, Paul is actually using a plural, you, to talk to the church at Colossians. But if you notice, it's a really similar thing to what he's saying to Philemon, right? It's a lot of similar concepts, a lot of similar things. So even what Philemon is doing at the church is not something that just he's doing. It's something that he's a part of a community that's living in this way. And he's just one of those people who's doing that. And I think as I'm trying to think about what is this concept of the church that Paul has that makes sense of this, there's a, a, a concept that some people use of this idea of, of what we could call communitarianism. And to, to, under, to contrast this, right, most people in our society today would be, would be individualists, right? Like this is the way we think about our existence, that we exist as individuals, first and foremost, right? I am, I am me. I am my identity, I create my identity, however that works out, I find my identity, and then I go and engage with other people in some way. And so if you have this idea of what reality is, then 
you start to think about the church in that way. Well, I have my relationship with Jesus. I get saved, me and Jesus. And, like, I guess I'll go hang out with some other people who also happen to do that, too. You know, it's like being part of some kind of, like, a chess club or something. Like, oh, I really like chess. It's really fun. But, like, I get bored playing alone, so I'll go find some other people to play it with me. And, well, there's some benefit to thinking that way, right? You get better at chess as you play with other people, so you become a better chess player. They become better, too. The club gets better. Hey, it's great. But that's not what the church is. The church is not just a gathering of private individuals who also happen to have some things in common. And we often use the concept of ecclesia, maybe you heard this word for the church, which is this idea of like association, a gathering. And I think we often take this metaphor as the primary one because we think about ourselves as individuals. We're, we're a gathering of the body of people. But it ignores a lot of the other language that Paul uses to talk about what the church is. That the, he uses this language of the church being this household, of it being a family, of it being a body. And some of these things, like the body of Christ and the bride of Christ, these aren't, those are like singular things, right? That we as the church are this one singular thing. So there is this entity that is the church that we are part of, and yet it isn't just the collection of us, if that, if that makes sense. So the opposite of this would be something like collectivism. So we think of, we think of like big bad communism, right? This is like the, 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 the society, the people over and against the individual, right? Individual doesn't matter. We don't care about the individual. The individual at any cost, as long as society is better. This is, not, this is not what Paul is talking about either. And this is why we have this idea of a communitarianism. And this is a dynamic relationship between the individual and the community, right? That both exist to serve and build up one another and exist in relationship to one another. And I think one, we have to, the way that ancient people thought about this, okay, prior to kind of modern individualism, was to think about what, what is good for us, right? If you think about what's good for you and you think about like, what, is, what does my life look like when it's thriving or flourishing, right? What, what is my dream? And we have to talk about this in terms of like the American dream or something like that. And what that ends up meaning in our society is that we all have private goods. This is what's good for me. Oh, and that's what's good for you. And as long as those things don't conflict with one another, we're all okay. And so then you get the idea of, of rights, and it all becomes about, as long as I can pursue my, the things I want, and you can pursue the things you want, everyone's happy. But what that does is it actually sets up all of our, our goods as being in competition with one another, right? We're all pursuing radically different things, and they might sometimes happen to work out together. This is very different from the way ancient people thought about what community was and what society was. So, for Aristotle, this, the conception of the good, okay, is, is something that is out there, right? There is a good, a tr like a, the, the real good. And all the little goods that we all pursue are part of that. Does that make sense? So even though I have something that is good for me and you have something that's good for you, it's actually part of the same good, the, the, the full good, right? So, so when I pursue my good and you pursue your good, we're in, at some level, even though it looks different, we're pursuing the same good which means that my good and the good of everyone else and the good of society is tied up together. Okay, so when one person thrives, everyone thrives. When one person suffers, everyone suffers. Which doesn't really make sense to us as individualists because, well, I'm thriving, what does it matter if that person's suffering? But if, but if there is the good, which all of our own goods 
are part of, then, then I'm actually not getting as much of the good if they're not getting it either, right? There's this, there's this deep connection there. And so in the Christian tradition, this developed in thinking about Christ as the ultimate good, the end of all creation. All creation is going towards Christ, which means the more that I pursue Christ and the more that I get of Christ, right, the more of this good, the ultimate good that I have. But then the more that the whole church pursues Christ, right, they're also pursuing that same good, which means my good is tied in with the good of the church. I know this is a bit complicated. But I think this explains to us why Jesus can say things like, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Because it's not like the good of God and the good of our neighbor are in competition, right? The good of our neighbor only exists because our neighbor was created by God for God, which means the good of our neighbor is ultimately pursuing the good of God, right? The glory of God. So it's not a choice between do I worship God or do I serve my neighbor, right? These things aren't in competition with one another. They're tied up necessarily into one another. Um, one of the ways that this plays out in the church, when we think about what the church is, and, and theologians will talk about, we have Christ who is sort of the objective part of the church. Right? It's how like the Trinity is involved in this, the objective part of the church. So we have one Lord, one Christ, or you know, one God, one baptism, that we all have the same, uh, our faith is all in one, is in Christ. Right? That's, that's this thing that we're sharing together. And so we together are the body of Christ under the one head who is Christ. We together are the bride of Christ who will be reconciled or united with Christ in eternity. So there's that, there's that oneness with Christ. But then there's this subjective element, which is what the Holy Spirit is doing. So God, as the Holy Spirit, is indwelling individual believers. So even though the church is the temple of God, individual believers are being indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit with the gifts that we have. And this is what I mean by this dynamic between the, the individual and the community. Because you have Christ, who is the community in Christ, and yet with the Spirit, you have this individuality, right? You have Pentecost, where everyone's speaking these individual languages, and, and their cultures and languages are being affirmed and being brought out. You have uh, the Spirit dwelling in each of us, providing us with gifts, right? Supernatural gifts, gifts that we have been given to use to bless others and build up the church. And so, I don't know if you can see this relationship between the individual, someone like Philemon, and the church at Colossians. And now Paul can write the same thing to both of them and have them both be true of them together at the same time and how they're mutually reinforcing. So why does it matter that all these goods are tied up together? Like I said, if our goods are the same goods as everyone else, then everything we're doing is affecting those around us. It's affecting whether or not they are also participating in those goods and being brought closer to Christ. So the growing together towards Christ is actually the same, it's a common goal that we're sharing in together. And so this brings us to the, the next point, which is that faith and fellowship produces knowledge in good works. So this is what Paul then goes on to say in verse 6. He talks about the fellowship of faith uh, becoming uh, effective or efficient, he says, in uh, knowledge of all the good, and this here means like good works, uh, in us, towards Christ. And this is the idea I said of, of towards Christ, that all of it is leading and pointing towards Christ. Okay, so everything that we're doing is, is drawing everyone closer 
to Christ as the end and goal of what we do. Uh, I like, I think the NIV brings out a little bit more of this relationship here in some ways. It says, I, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. So I think it gets a little bit better at what's, what's going on here. Um, and we see even for Philemon, right, that he's learned what it is to have faith from Paul, right, and from Epaphras. He says that he, he talks about that uh, towards the end of the letter, um, and from others. And so we know that, that even Philemon, who's, who's showing this love for the saints, who's ho- house, hosting this church in his house, he himself has been built up and received the gospel from other believers. Right? This isn't just like a private project that he's doing. He's being a good person. Like he's been filled up and built up by the church. Uh, Paul talks about then this relationship between faith and good works. Right? The, the, the knowledge of faith of Christ is producing these good works, which we see in Philemon's life, the hospitality, the generosity, the love that he's showing for the saints. Paul talks about this as well in Colossians. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you, it's in verse 9 and 10, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, he powerfully works in me. So there's a relationship between the knowledge of Christ that seems to come out of the sharing of faith, that we know God more as we interact with one another, right? That, that it's not like I can just go read my Bible by myself and like learn everything I need to know. Like, together, we come to a fuller, deeper knowledge of who God is, and that knowledge is also knowledge of good works. It's a knowledge of how to live in a way that brings glory to Christ. And all of that is to build us up into maturity in Christ, right? That it's leading us into deeper relationship with Christ. Now, why uh, is Paul here then saying, so in verse 7, He goes on to say, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And before we get to this last point, um, why is Paul spending his time praising Philemon's virtuous character? I think this goes back to this, thinking about this as a letter, um, that Paul is writing to Philemon to ask him to do something really hard. And we're going to hear more about this next week, but you heard it read. He's asking him to do something that's going to be really hard for him. And he's saying, Philemon, I've seen your generosity. I've heard about your love. I've heard about your faith. I know the kind of person that you are. And he's setting him up for this, this big ask. And this is a formal, a formal practice in, in rhetoric that people, we do this. But we do this at a most basic level all the time. And my, my daughter started doing this thing that isn't actually doing this, but it always, I always think it is. She'll, she'll say, um, dad... And that's it. <laughs> but I keep waiting for the, like, can I have the car keys? <laughs> can I have the, buy some ice cream? <laughs> I'm waiting for that request, right? There's, like, this sort of setting up, like, um, Dad, you know how much you love me? You know how much you care about me? You know how cute I am? Like, hey, you want to give me this thing that I want? Right? And, it, and it's true. I do love her, and she is cute. Right? But it's, it's setting up for this request so that I will be more inclined to respond favorably. And in some way, we see Paul doing that here. He's... he's calling him account with this accountability of the church, 
but also then affirming his character in Christ. He's like, I've seen the way that you live your life. I've seen the evidence of your faith. I've seen the way you love the saints. So now I want you to do this thing, right? And he's asking him this, this hard question. Um, but we'll get to that next week. So, you know, stay on the edge of your seats. But the last point we hear, see here is that faith, this fellowship of faith refreshes the people of God. And that, that Philemon's righteous living is actually bringing joy and comfort to Paul. Paul, who's all the way over in Rome, right? He's hearing about what Philemon's doing, and he's being encouraged. He's, he's full of joy and comfort while he's under house arrest. And that we see that even though this doing, going, going back to this idea of the, of the good being tied up with good in general, that doing good, doing this, this righteous living, that it might be hard, but it's not counterproductive, right? It's, it's always bringing about my good and bringing about the good of others. And for Paul, he's being joy, getting joy and comfort in this because the hearts of the saints are being refreshed. So they're being encouraged and built up, and Paul's being encouraged and built up because they're being encouraged and built up, right? You see, just all the connections that Paul is drawing in this dependency of life that they have on one another. And this language of rest and refreshment is, is this idea of, of either resting from like hard toil or labor or as a soldier, right? Paul's using this language of fellow soldier, of, of resting from battle, right? And, and Philemon is doing this not just in this kind of abstract way, but he's actually hosting these people in his house, right? He, he's in a very real practical way. He's refreshing and resting these people so they can continue to pursue Christ. They can continue to do good. They can continue to grow in their faith because of what he's doing. So my encouragement and challenge to you this morning is to begin to shift your thinking about this, what does it mean to be part of the church and part of the fellowship of faith so that you too can be a refreshment to the people of God and that we all together can grow into maturity in Christ. I want you to tie up your well-being with the well-being of the church. The church sort of in this corporate sense, but also all of the individuals in the church. Right? Do, do, we, do we weep when the church is weeping or when people in the church are weeping? Do we rejoice when they're rejoicing? Is that, is that our reality? Or is this just a place that we gather sometimes because we kind of all happen to like God? Is your good, you're very good. Everything you think about when you think about your life thriving and flourishing and the end and the goal of your existence, is that tied up with the thriving of the church? And if not, why not? And in order to, some ways to, to start to facilitate that, uh, I would encourage you to pray, as we see Paul modeling here, praying with thanksgiving first. Asking, who are the people that God has put in my life that have led me to Christ? Maybe it's people that led you to Christ initially. Maybe it's people right now who are encouraging you, who are building you up, who are speaking truth into your life, who are holding you accountable, who have shown you hospitality or generosity. And thank God for those people. Thank him that he has put people in your life to bring you to Christ. And then start to pray for the good of the church, for all of God's people. Pray that they would grow up into this maturity in Christ, 
to look like Christ, to live like Christ, that their faith would be strengthened and built up so that you can be refreshing to them. And then that's finally to refresh the saints. And maybe you can follow Philemon's example. Open up your home. Invite people into your home to come, to gather, to pray together, to cook, cook meals for people, whatever you can, if you, if, you, if you have a home to do that. But because of the Spirit, right, we have all different kinds of gifts that God has given to us. And so that, that love which we all share and are doing together might look like different things for each of us as we are empowered by the Spirit to do them. So, that's, so think and pray about what, what is the thing that God has given me, the gifts he has given me, that I can pour out into the lives of others, that I can bring into the church to, to build up, to encourage and refresh the saints around me. And finally, that, that fellowship is the reason that we come to this table week after week. And why the church has always held this thing that seems like just kind of an odd ritual in such high esteem. Because we come around the, that one body of Christ. Talk about Christ being the, the objective part of how we understand the church. Because it is only through Christ that we are reconciled to God. And we need to come back to that. That, that thing that we, we have right, in common that's holding us together, that gives us a shared identity, is Christ. That he is our beginning, the one who created us and made us and sustains us, and he is our end, meaning he is the one towards which we are being drawn, that God is drawing us together. And so we come to this table to remember Christ, to remember what he has done for us, to remember what he is doing for us right now as he sustains us, as he intercedes for us, to the Father, that we would be united with him and with one another, and that we would then look forward to the wedding supper, when we, the bride of Christ, will be united with Christ, and we will get to enjoy eternity together. So if you're here and you're a Christian, uh, I would encourage you, and invite, or I invite you to come to the table, that we'll have servers up here to uh, hand out the bread, uh, which is all gluten-free now, uh, and you can take